0: and welcome to this, the 22nd episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, Angus Ogue-McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and producer here at Rise, I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this week it's a slightly special edition because it's an extended edition due to the fact that we have a very special guest and it is our first ever transatlantic live via satellite podcast. So um, I'm not going to go through the whole usual speech of getting out there and buying tickets and supporting us and supporting the podcast. At this stage, you know the deal about this podcast. What are we here to do? Support, promote, and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. What's the best way to do that? Go and buy yourself some tickets. It's a simple message, just go and do it. You can support us, of course. Rise Productions, you'll find us on Facebook, you'll find us on Twitter. You have all the usual addresses. So, that brings us to this week's guest. And why have we afforded them a special extended edition of the podcast? Because it's Alan goddamn Stanford, and that's a guy who just deserves it. He is so intelligent, so articulate, uh, and so steeped in Irish theatre. Going back to the late 60s, he's a guy who has just been at the forefront uh, of so much of what has been great about Irish theatre as an actor, as a writer, as a director. Uh, for, as you'll hear from the podcast, from his involvement with Project, to setting up Second Age, to obviously all his work at the Gate Theatre, including those massively iconic productions. Um, he's a guy who deserves the airtime. He's a guy who's a pleasure to chat to. He's a guy who's a real pleasure to work with. I've, I've had the honour of working with Alan quite a few times and, and for my money there's no one can touch him when it comes to Shakespeare uh, in this country so look I'm not going to rabbit it on I'm going to get straight into this here he is the brilliant Alan Stanford the brilliant Alan Stanford thank you so much for coming to have a chat to us or or indeed joining us live via satellite all the way from the United States
1: I know. Within megaseconds, we are talking over 48,000 miles. It's amazing.
0: It is a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's the wonders of modern technology. It's a wonderful, oh, it's wonderful thing. Um, right. OK, let's kick off as we do every week with the, the same question. When did you realize that a career and a life in the theater might be something for you?
1: Uh, I'm not absolutely convinced that a career in the theater is the life for me um, <laughs> but uh I've never actually sort of totally convinced myself this was a good idea i first think I think I first thought or at least showed some glimmer of um of such a career at about the age of five um but i didn't uh, I didn't get into it until I was a little bit older and um it was to do with the fact that you know I grew up uh with on, on, you know, in a very small place on the Isle of Wight in the south of England, and I was an only child, and so my my mum and dad used to take me to London every Christmas, and uh, and I eventually I used to go see things like the pantomime in the Palladium, and other plays. They just took me to see plays because I kept saying I want to go and see a play. So from a very early age, um, I, going to going up to London on holidays and things, I'd, I'd start going to the theatre, and I think it just. It grew. Right. Um, it wasn't I've no tradition of it. There was nothing in my family that I knew about then, or um, well, possibility. It just sort of happened. Okay. And, and, and by the time I was sort of, you know, in 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 school, sort of going through the second level, I was very fortunate enough to have an English teacher who spotted the fact that I could do it. Um, uh, possibly not very well, but I could do it, and so he encouraged it and developed it. And by the time I finished school, I was I was basically crap all you said anything else. I was an, a, shall we say, a, an indifferent, modest student. <laughs> and, uh, but I could do this, so I I I he encouraged me, and and I went to drama school at a very tender age. I think I was seventeen and a half when I went to drama school, which was way way too young. Went off to London to the Guildhall, and um and the rest is um. Is my hideous history?
0: Well, see now, I want to talk to you about that time of training because, uh, as far as I know, you were kind of instrumental in setting up the the actor training course at the Beckett Centre in Trinity. Ultimately, uh, when Uh, you came over here,
1: not so much that, but in the early days, um, but back in the seventies when I was when I was um, uh, in project and uh, I got invited by um, a a teacher I knew in Trinity to they they had this embryonic thought that they might maybe at some point. Because it was, it was around the, the, the bicentenary of modern languages in Trinity. Um, you know, and uh, it was only 200 years, sort of, uh, or four, no, four quarters, I can't remember what it was. But it was the point at which they started teaching languages other than ancient Greek and Latin. Right, and okay. it, had, it, had, it had taken them one and a half thousand years to reach that point. Trinity moves slowly, but with great wisdom. So, uh, back in the early 70s, there was this notion that they might teach Something to do with drama they wouldn 't go so far as to say theater right, um, and I was brought in to 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 do workshops and 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 uh, as it were, teach a little bit of acting on the side when nobody noticed and the registrar wasn 't looking <laughs> and and then we would put on some plays and it was a combination of the arts letters faculty uh, students could take um, one term where they would might do a dissertation or 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 an exam or something based on a theatre aspect of whatever else it was they were, you know. So it it started to grow from that, and then eventually uh, this this lecturer in French, John McCormack, and I we sort of nudged and pushed and nudged and pushed and and got some money, and it that was where the embryo began. That the whole idea of what is now the, the the drama course and and indeed the Lear,
0: yeah. Wow, because, I mean, I remember when I was coming to the time that I wanted to go to training, uh, I was whatever I was 18 years, and I couldn't wait to get into training. But looking back on it now, going in at 17, 18, 19 is quite young for drama school. Oh, it's school.
1: ridiculously young. I, I don't think anybody should go to a drama school. I mean, certainly nobody should do what I did, which was to go straight from school to drama school. You know, you've got to go out and get a little bit of life knowledge before you go and... Uh, it, it was it, it. It I was lucky in the sense that I went to a very good drama school and I had a couple of extremely good teachers. I had a brilliant acting teacher and a very brilliant voice teacher. But had it had it not been for a, a, a degree of luck, I, I could probably would have drowned. Right. Um, I think you need to know. A li- I think you need to know a little bit about life. You need to be knocked about by life a little bit before you go to drama school. Uh, whereas I just did the opposite. I went to drama school and then got absolutely screwed by life. But,
0: uh. <laughs> so, okay. So, talk to me then about the transition from your time at training into going out working professionally, uh, and ultimately how that led to you coming across to Ireland. Mm.
1: Well, back then, uh, in the late 60s, when you, when you... I was of that generation. I remember having this conversation with uh, Robert O'Mahony and um, the English actor John Dateen, who I did The Woman in Black with. And we were all in drama school at the same time. Bob was in um, Bristol. John was in uh, drama centre, and I was in Guildhall. And, again, we, they, were, they were very young. They tended to take them in much younger. Now, I was probably particularly young but um you came you were trained we were trained in the in the british drama school system for a form of theater that ceased to exist by the time we graduated (laughs) which was old you know british repertory theater you you know you come out of drama school you get work in the reps and you do the circuit of the reps and that's where you worked and and you do weekly rep god there was still weekly rep because i did it uh, Two-weekly rep, three-weekly rep, four-weekly rep was really pushing it. You were sort of up to the Royal Shakespeare by the time you got there. Right. Um, and bits, the odd bits of television. And, of course, the, the rep system was collapsing by that stage, um, because you know t- television had taken the dominant hold, and uh, so so we were sort of slightly unprepared for the world that we went into. But I did a bit of rap. I appeared in a few bits and pieces, and I did a bit of television. And I actually managed to get a run of I think about six episodes of, of Zed Cars, and then then gross unemployment. And I was I was becoming a wonderfully um, efficient Mrs. Mop. Um, I had two ladies up in uh, in. in <laughs> in in finchley that i did for and uh beginning to go demented and i was also becoming a very good cocktail barman right and uh it's a couple of years after coming out uh of drama school sorry <laughs> <laughs> Be careful I, I, don't, I
0: don't think there's much doubt there but continue no, I don't think,
1: anyway but um so i uh, i got a phone call one day from um A guy who was a student in in Guildhall, not, he hadn't been there when I was, he was like it was a year after I left and he'd just gone in as an intake and he, uh, I got this strange message saying if you'd like to go and do a summer season in Killarney please give me a call and he was a student of my acting teacher who, and had mentioned the fact that uh, that um, his father who was uh, the actor John Welsh um or actually John Walsh from from Wexford, everybody, very famous, very well-known actor. And a friend of his was doing this summer season uh, for years and years and years. And uh, he mentioned to this guy, Simon, I think his name was, would you, uh, yes, it was Simon. Would you know of anybody in uh, Simon asked his acting teacher, and his acting teacher said, there's an ex-student of mine serving in the bar across from the Mermaid Theatre, <laughs> Try him. And so I, I, at the same point, I'd just been, offered the possibility of understudying in the mousetrap for a year. Wow. And I thought, do I want to sit understudying the mousetrap for a year? Or do I want to go to the west of Ireland? So I went to Killarney. Excellent. For 12 weeks and 43 years later, I'm still
0: (laughs) Officially an Irish citizen.
1: Well, I am an Irish citizen. Yeah. Uh, 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 And, 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 uh, you know, I never earned enough money to get to escape. Wow. So um, that was it. Uh, I just happened to go, and it, uh, I found that I—I I suppose you could say that if, I've ha- if I have a career at all, it's been on the taxi rank principle. You know, something. You know, the next another fare will turn up, right? And you take it, and you go with it, and you see where it leads you.
0: So then. How did you come to be involved in project in Project Arts Centre? Then,
1: same thing. I mean, I came after that season. I came up to Dublin. It was a couple of years later, in fact. I came up to Dublin, and I was going to stay for a, for a couple of weeks, and then one thing led to another, and I got a job, and then I got another job, and then you know, I met a woman, and then, but um, you, it, it, these things sort of it, it wasn't some great plan. I happened to be in a particular place at a particular time and uh I, I, I suppose i've been in dublin about three pushing three years then it would have been 71 yeah no it's two years 71 and uh, i'd met jerry mcsorley and uh, we were sharing a bed set in 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 dublin six the way one the way you did and we met somebody else and a couple of people said why don't we put on a play where will we do it let's put it in this, this, Project Art Center, which had just moved into South King Street at the time. Went in, did a play, met a few people. One thing led to another. And within six months, I was I was running the Project Theater. Um, <laughs> it just, it happened. It wasn't a plan. It just happened. Uh, my, I got on terribly well with Mike Bulfin, who was the chairman of the project at that stage. Um, and uh, we ran it there very successfully. And, and in fact, the first real fringe festival took place there in the, the South King Street project. Um, we, and we were equally responsible for putting on theater, putting on the exhibitions, all of those things. It was a fabulous place. I mean, and it was real warehouse theater. The, the back door of the theater actually opened up into another part of that terrible complex of buildings, which is now the Stevens Green Center. Wow, um, but there was all sorts of nasty little warehouses and uh, Captain Peterson's old pipe factory and all sorts of things. And the back door of the, if you, at the back of the stage, the door opened up, and there you were in the Dandelion Market. You know, it was it was a really great place. It was it was um, it was very exciting, and all sorts of nasty little smelly pubs and bookshops and.
0: There are, there's kind of mythical stories around Project at that time. How special and how exciting a place was it?
1: It was phenomenally exciting. There was, you see, back in that period, there was no alternative theatre other than The Lantern, which was essentially amateur, and Deirdre and The Focus. Yes. The Focus really was the only alternative theatre that was. Professional, where you know young professionals went and worked and studied and learned. and people like like Tom Hickey and Johnny Murphy and um, uh, Tim McDonald, a whole whole gang of them. They worked in Focus. They were the Focus actors. They were the. It was the Stanislavski clan and Deirdre, who was, you know, an inspirational role model. She was. A, a, she was a woman of fable, walking as around as she did in her black clothes with her black shawl and her flaming red hair and 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 that wonderful, delightful insanity and she wouldn't leave the focus. She was a wonderful actress. I directed her there twice. Right. She was a fabulous actress. Uh, but that was it. There was no alternative. So then when Project began to emerge, it had started in 66 as an exhibition of paintings and some one-act plays in the Gate Theatre when the Gate was available. Uh, so they called it Project 66 and, and that's where the name project came out of it then became itinerant and uh, at one point it was underneath the old Metropolitan Hall which is now the Irish Life Center across from the Abbey stage door Um, and then they found this building on South King Street and uh, that was when I went into it but it was it was so exciting because it was a place of possibilities and that hadn't existed for young people a place of possibility so you know and and it's so long ago that i was a young person <laughs> and, and you you weren't even born this is very so, true <laughs> you know uh but you know and you had people uh you know i mean chris o'neill was very instrumental in it um tom jordan and a few others of of just getting people in and saying to them look You can try things here. This is where you, this is your home. And we would bring, anybody wanted to come in, do a play. The one rule was you couldn't, you had the right to fail. You didn't have the right to be bad. Okay. Which which many people were. (laughs) But you had the right to fail. And that hadn't existed. And we started doing, and it it was very interesting because around the same time as we were starting it up in King Street, Tomas McKenna had the super, Supreme intelligence to appoint Joe Dowling to run the young Abbey in the Peacock. Yes. So what Joe was doing in the mainstream, we were doing on the fringe and you had this great upsurge of acting activity. It wasn't about writing as much as acting activity of people having an opportunity to try themselves out on plays they wouldn't normally get an opportunity to work for. Because if you didn't work for the Abbey or the Gate, it was just independent commercial management. Yes. There wasn't Arts Council funding, a bit like today. <laughs> uh, you, you, had to make it, you had to make it on your own, and you had to prove yourself, uh, which is something i talk to talk about again about in a minute. But you had to prove you had it in you before anybody gave you anything.
0: And for the most part, were we talking about taking uh, established texts and yes. reworking them, or was there devising of oh, new no, no. stuff going on? We did
1: everything. We did everything. I mean, we did everything. In you know, we, we I, uh, from obscure Russian dramas to Shakespeare to cabarets to you know new plays, new writing. Um, we did everything. Well, if it was possible, you put it on. And so, the, by the time we moved from from King Street to Essex Street. Which was built the old project in Essex. I mean the, the old project in Essex Street was the new project then. yes uh, It was built by about five or six of us and a gang of volunteers um, over a space so, I mean we did, we did it. it was a miracle. we started in November and we opened it in March. Um, but by the time we moved there, we'd, 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 we'd sort of got a, a much more defined format for how we would operate. Um, and also the, the arts council had started to give money. Right, so okay. Was, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, no, it, it was, a, it, I mean, it was, it was the time when most of the people in the establishment now were formulating
0: well, yeah it seems that, that that there was an explosion of young, fresh, innovative talent at the time, and yeah. and, and presumably it, it was the fact that project was there, and, and you say also um, with what Joe was doing at the Abbey, but that there was and what Deirdre was doing in the focus yes yeah, that, it, that it facilitated this kind of explosion of emerging talent, yeah. which has now gone on to like you said become the establishment
1: yes, very much so. I mean, there was an ASM in the Abbey theater who worked a lot with in, in the peacock. Um, who's been running the gate for the last 30 years. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it all started then. The What we now know as the Irish theatre in terms of producers, actors and directors, that explosion happened then. But it was because we weren't, and I think this is an important point, it was because we weren't just working on trying to create new plays. We were trying to create a new dialogue of acting and directing. And it was theatre very much based on, on the nature of performance and the freedom to perform and the freedom to discover, the 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 medium of theatre. But using a lot of the time, dealing with yes, yes, dealing with established text. The 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 emergence of the author director was a much later phenomenon. At this point, it was it was let's put on plays, let's learn how to do them, let's. Uh, let's discover. And I must say, for my own self, w- w- one of the very important things for me in that period, when I started directing plays in, in projects, I, I, and I've been, I've been a director as long as I've been a writer, I've been an actor, two very important people used to come and see my productions when they could. And afterwards, they wouldn't come to open nights. They'd come about a week into it and we would sit and drink <laughs> wine and they would talk to me. And that was Hilton and Michael. Right. Hilton Edwards and Michael McLeamore cared, and they'd come and see things, and I'd sit and talk, and ask. they'd ask me, why did you do this, why did you do that, it was a very, very important mentoring period for me, and something I've never forgotten, so I've always worked on the principle, that if you have the wisdom, pass it on.
0: That's really interesting that, that because you, at that time when you say it, when things were so limited, the idea that they weren't shutting up shop and keeping things to themselves but they were actively out mentoring no, and keeping no. things moving along is, is very interesting. Yeah, they
1: cared. They cared a great deal.
0: And was that your start of a relationship with the Gate Theatre then?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no Hilton, Hilton, I remember Hilton said to me once, he said, it's a wonderful thing that you want to be a director, dear boy, because you couldn't possibly act on the Gate Stage. You're far too tall. <laughs> <laughs> had um <laughs> little thinking that I'd spend most of my life acting on the gate stage but anyway oh, wow. uh, you know not, you you can you can be brilliant and still get it slightly wrong
0: that's amazing
1: so uh, from the project I uh, the, the other very important sort of influence and and uh, on me in those early days when I started moving out of the project things was was an independent producer it was Phyllis Ryan and if anybody built my career as an actor, it was Phyllis. She just had this faith in me and determination that if she thought I could act it, I could act it. And So she, rather in that same way of, uh, of not going for the safe and for the obvious, she would cast me in plays that I, I wouldn't necessarily be absolutely you know, the ideal choice for or would give me parts that were way beyond what I would normally have been cast but would make me stretch. So I became, I sort of became a character actor uh, while I was still a young man. You know, the, the only, the only, difference in my acting nowadays is that i spend less money on makeup
0: yes <laughs> well that's i mean that's an interesting thing and it's something we've spoken about a bit before in that kind of with the absence of that old rep system uh, or like the Abbey company when you don't have the opportunity to be cast slightly outside your comfort zone be that yeah. you know type or age or whatever that, yeah. that, that that's the occasion when you do get to stretch yourself and bring yourself yeah. on and and properly develop and that that's kind of an opportunity that isn't there for freelance Absolutely. theater practitioners now
1: It's something that Stephen Brennan and I talk about an awful lot, that we're not giving the actors, or or there are not enough opportunities for actors to stretch themselves beyond their comfort zone. And that there's too much casting that tends to be safe or obvious. And you only develop skilled theater actors when you move them out of their comfort zone and make them learn that it is about acting, not about being.
0: So... So then, when did your relationship with the gate start properly then Well, <laughs> my first appearance
1: in the because remember when Hilton and Michael had the gate, they only had it six months of the year. The rest of the year it was independent managements would have it okay, and my so- first experience in the gate was um, a production that Phyllis Ryan was putting on of uh, of of the Barretts of Wimpole Street, and I was cast by your sainted grandfather. Excellent. Uh, Ray cast me. Ray was directing it, and also playing um, uh, uh, Robert Browning. And Godfrey Quigley was old ma- Papa Barrett, and, and and Kate Flynn was was uh, and uh, I I played the role of Captain Surtees Cook, who was a, a life a guards officer. You know the horse guards thing and the whole. Uniform, which was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever worn in my life, with trousers that, that, that nearly turned me into a woman and, <laughs> and boots that chafed the groin. And my first entrance onto the gate stage as a professional actor was walking through a door, tripping on the spurs on my boots, the door opening and my character's girlfriend opening the door. So I literally arrived on the gate stage falling into the arms of Brenda Fricker. Which is no bad place to
0: start, I would argue,
1: well, you know you could do a lot worse,
0: <laughs> and so then over time
1: well over time, I did a lot of work in the gate, um, but with the independent managements, especially with Phyllis, I did a huge right. amount in the gate with with Phyllis Ryan and others and um, uh, and it was only when uh, after after uh, had died. And Hilton was running down and was getting old, getting tired, and handing over to a large extent. And Pat Laffin had become, as it were, his his sort of one of the guys who who would do the directing. Right. And uh, so the first time I officially worked for the Gate, for Edwards McClearmore Gate Theatre Productions, was a production he had a play that he'd always intended to direct. Realized he no longer could. Realized his first choice for the. The central role couldn't play it. So he handed it to Pat Laffin, and Pat Laffin rang me one day and said, I've got a, I'm have got doing a play in The Gate. Do you want to be in it? I said, yeah. He said, uh, it's Amadeus. I said, I don't think there's anything for me in that, is there? And he said, so you mean you don't want to play Salieri? So I dropped the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I literally dropped the phone. And I, that was my first job with the, the gate proper, was to play Salieri in Amadeus. Now, by that stage, I'd already done you know, a few seasons with the Irish Theatre Company and we'd been touring and... So I sort of built up my, shall we say, uh, mainstream credentials by Yes.
0: What was that time with the ITC like?
1: Oh, that was great. God, it was great. Oh, those halcyon days when the government-funded theatre properly, uh, when there was enough money to do things properly. Because, again, the Irish Theatre Company was a sort of... um, There was no regional theatre... It just didn't exist. Gary and Mick and, and the gang in Galway were just coming out of a uh, university and beginning to set up the idea of Druid. But it was all very embryonic. The The only quasi-professional theatre in Cork was the Everyman, which was basically an amateur company. Um, there was nothing. There was Belfast. Um, so the Irish Theatre Company was the, 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 the sort of the the vanguard of professional theater in the regions. Um, and we played everywhere from town halls to village halls to parish halls, you know, and but but with enough funding that um, that we could go into a, you know, like we could go into uh, the parish hall in Clonburr County Galway and six hours later there was a theater. Wow. Fully rigged, set up, lights, everything. And... So it 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 set up the possibility that you could have professional theatre outside Dublin. Yes, but that was the and first time it had happened. That was the first not since the fit-ups. That yeah. was the first time it had happened. Yeah, so, and it was great. We had we, I mean we had a ball, and you know the, the, I mean the, the the you know the stories are legion of 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 the goings on with the Irish Theatre Company. But what it basically was was. Phenomenally high standard of theatre presented in your local hall, right? And and, uh, and great people, uh, you know, doing. And it was one of Joe Dowling's finest hours. You know, the the, the work he did um, in 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 setting it up and establishing it as a, a as a real, uh, you know, a, a theatre on the move as opposed to just putting on plays in halls. Yeah. That this company, and it was a theater, and it had an identity. And it got to the point um, when the ITC was coming into town, you just basically put up posters saying the ITC is coming, and it would sell out, Um, because people began to adopt it. It was their theater. It was a national theater. In the truest sense in the truest sense, because we weren't allowed to say that.
0: (laughs) Yes, of course not. So, okay, then, let's talk about a certain Mr. Colgan and his tenure at the gate and your ongoing professional relationship with him. Uh, Tell me all about him.
1: Oh, God, have you a week. (laughs) Michael and I met on ITC. Right. Um, You know, he was company manager, and we became friends uh, and Michael is the most affable person in the world, so we, we all became friends with Michael but we would, we would talk about theater a bit, and I remember once talking to him we we were i think we were in yes, we were in Waterford playing Waterford. <laughs> And we'd gone off, and himself and Susie and myself... I think Susie and I had just done a school thing. (laughs) You know, where you'd go into the schools in the morning and talk about Shakespeare and things. Then Michael picked us up, and we went down to Tremor for lunch. And we were talking about, what would you do um, if you had the money and the facility? What sort of theatre would you create? And we all agreed we would create... a. theater of perfection. In other words, a place where you could put on the best plays with the best actors in the best way possible. You may not always get it right, but that you would strive to make it as right as possible. About four years later, he got the job and I was playing in the gate and he walked in and said, now we do it. And it was that attitude of the the thing about him that I admire the most well you know it's impossible because he's an incredibly loyal friend and he's he's he ha, he's, a, he's actually an incredibly moral person and he works harder than anybody I know on this planet and he does one thing and it, it's interesting he does one thing he produces plays in the gate yes. That's it, and it's rather like his other very close friend, Paul McGuinness. He does one thing; he runs you too. yeah. To have that single-mindedness and still stay stay, stay sane <laughs> after nearly thirty years is a that takes a, a huge determination and a very big intellect and a degree of patience and determination and whatever else. And you know, it's the old joke. Um, so-and-so is his own worst enemy, not while I'm alive. You know, um, he, he, many people can think, there are so many things you can say about him and he's the most annoying man in the world and all of the, there is nobody in this world with the determination and the single-mindedness and, and the absolute dedication of purpose. He works phenomenally
0: hard at one thing. What are the highlights of your time at the gate under his kind of stewardship, whether that's as performer or as writer or as director or what? What have been the the real highlights for you there? Well, I suppose the big achievement is survival. Uh, (laughs) Just the fact that you're still going?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh, so many. I mean, the first thing I did, which was before Michael ever went there, which was Amadeus, was a major turning point for me. Because it was the kind, again, it was a part that I was actually way too young for and uh that was and, and I actually did that year we we it was the year the time of the Harvey's Theater Awards. Yes. And I I was nominated for the best actor and I knew I wouldn't get it. Uh and I did against the the opposition that I thought would be impossible to beat which was again your grandfather. Right? Nice. <laughs> I actually <laughs> nicked it from Ray. So that was important but then went from the time Michael took over it all became um really quite huge. Um there are two performances. I mean, I've played so many parts there. And I've directed so many things there. And it also gave me an opportunity to expand into adaptation and, and, and write things. But there are two parts that I will always, you know, I will go to my grave saying, whatever else I did in my life as an actor or a writer, I played Herod in Salome at the gate. And I played Pozzo in Waiting for Godot. Those two, those two things... Um, because they were two productions that, you know, you do an awful lot of things in your life, and some of them are crap, and some of them are okay, and some of them you get away with, and a lot of them can be very, very good and very consistent. But if you're lucky in your career, you will have something that will truly,
0: truly make you feel that you shine. Well, particularly those those two parts uh, and those two productions mm. are so iconic in the canon of... Of well Irish theatre of the last I don't know however far yeah. you want to go back like a hundred years even you know yeah, they are yeah. so iconic they're two of yeah. the the biggest productions uh, yeah. and to have been part of both of them is, is no small achievement it's,
1: well no it's wonderful and I mean to have been able to, cont- and the, the the important point was not just that they were one a couple of little sparks in the firmament, but that they became orbiting planets. That the productions survived. Both of those productions survived over twenty years, uh, with you know with Salome, with with cast changes and what have you. But that we became we maintained not only maintained the productions, but they matured and they grew and they developed and they stayed as alive. Twenty years after their initial production, I mean, when do you think? A couple of years ago, when we toured God around Ireland, you know, the the famous one night stand tour.
0: Wait, did you production. do every, every single county I mean, all thirty two counties or something?
1: We did. It was forty venues, thirty two counties, over eight weeks, one night only. Wow, that's so pr- that's it, properly remarkable. Now it is truly remarkable, and we began in Enniscorthy where. Hilton Edwards met Michael McLeary because it was also um, the Gate anniversary, and we finished in Enniskillen, where Samuel Beckett went to school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was, it was. I mean, it, when you think about it, I would imagine that the, for Hilton and Michael, the thought that one of the great, the great, memorable Gate sort of. Um, uh, Archetypal productions that this is the gate would have been Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. I think they two of them would be laughing, to, <laughs> they'd die laughing if they weren't already dead, you know. I mean, the prospect, even when you think about it, you know, because when I was a lad, Waiting for Godot was the sort of thing, even up to about 20 odd years ago, that you know, it was a rarity and you it was guaranteed box office death. Now you put on Waiting for Godot, it's guaranteed box office success, you know.
0: Well, how, how responsible is Michael for that? Because it seems to me that. He has taken what had been, you know, the Becketts. If not that it's obscure, but it's challenging, and it's not necessarily the most accessible fare in the world. But it seems that through him and the not association so, with Beckett at the Gate, it's so
1: accessible. It's the most accessible writing in the world. It's brilliant, and Michael recognised that. Michael was, had a passion for Beckett when he was a student. He always loved it. Um, he got this notion of let's do. It was it was the the Gate sixtieth anniversary, and in that year we did, which was eighty eight we did three things that, that he passionately wanted to do. He wanted to do the first two plays The Gate ever did, which was Salome and Pier And Frank McGuinness wrote what I still think is one of the best uh, translations of the play ever. Uh, we did that. And then he wanted to do Waiting for Godot. And he wanted Beckett to direct it, but, but, but he, was, he got too frail. Right. Mishka was that he would. And so he said, look, the, the guy who assisted me in the Schiller production, which is when Beckett redefined the play, Walter Asmus, use him, and uh, Walter came and directed it. But it was a passion from Michael that he wanted to get that play on. Seeing how well it worked, then the thing stepped forward, and in 1990 we did the, you know, this crazy notion: we're going to do every single one of Beckett's stage plays in three weeks. And everybody said you are out of your mind. And it was phenomenally successful, and then we went on we did it in London, we did it in New York, we went to Australia and then Godot just kept going and kept growing um but it was his i think the genius uh, and I use the word in its pure sense rather than its conventional one the genius in the brain of Michael was to see that that you have something that is not only it's like it's like wine you you pick the grapes and you make the wine and you taste it and you realize that it is not only very good but if you allow it to grow and to improve and you put it in the barrel and take it out every now and again and work at it again it will become not just a good wine but a great
0: wine yeah and i mean to have that length of a production like you say you know those two shows running for over 20 years that, to me, seems almost unique. When you think back of, you know, the iconic Abbey productions of the Sean O'Casey plays and stuff, there's yeah. none of those that would have had that kind of a, a lifespan. So- no, no, they wouldn't, but, but,
1: but people didn't have the vision that that could happen. Now, you couldn't do it with, with everything that you do. I mean, we did an awful lot of plays that, that we grow too old for, but, you know, for as long as I'm, there's no age at which to play Herod you know, we've had to change Salome, but yes. you can play Herod and Herodias for pretty much forever. I keep saying, people say, how much longer will you do Salome? I said, for as long as I can crawl across that stage. <laughs> and, and there is no right age to play the four characters in, in Godo. We were all in our 40s when we first did it. We're now in our 60s. Yeah, And if anything, We've got better because of it. Not because we're older, but but because we've grown older with it. We have been waiting not for two acts, but for 23 years.
0: Which will certainly add a little colour to the production, I would imagine.
1: Well, somebody, somewhere or the other, I can't remember where it was, Some I think it might have been on the last tour, but somebody said... um, We've I been mean, doing it for 20 years. What, I mean, could you imagine what, what would it be like if you did it for another 20 years? I said, I suspect by then, because every time we do it, we do less and less and less. It just gets purer and purer and purer. I said, if we're doing it in 20 years' time, we'll just walk onto the stage, look at one another, and everybody will cheer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, right, I'm going to ask the ridiculous question, because I asked Paul Kogan, the designer, when I, had him, when I had him on, why should I give a shite about opera? This is, oh, I'm oh going I'm, to I'm, I'm, no, I'm I'm, I'm I'm get, get done for this, but why should I give a shite about Beckett? Oh, for a very simple reason.
1: To my mind, there were three great, you know, the three great pinnacles of theatre development was when a group of Greek writers realised that what they had done as, as, as religious exercise and storytelling could be turned into a new art form. And the the, the theater, as we understand it in Western culture, was invented by those Greek writers and those Greek actors. And that it it grew and grew and grew in, in similar mode for a very, very, very long time, about 2,000 years. And then along came a man, well, not just one man, but a group of men in Elizabethan England who said it can be better than that and particularly Shakespeare, and let's not get into who wrote Shakespeare and what's good. I don't give a damn who wrote it. What matters is that somebody sat down and redefined the way you can write a play and create drama, and that it should not be about gods and myths and men. It should be about people. And Shakespeare changed theatre radically, both by the language of theatre, by, by writing plays in a way that told the actors what told the actors what they were saying and how they can say it. And also wrote uh, and turned kings into people. Turned gods into people and wrote about the human condition 500 years before Mr. Freud worked it out. (laughs) And then the third great movement happened in the middle of the 20th century when somebody sat down, a man who wrote books and poetry sat down and decided to look at theater as a mode of expression of thought and attitude and idea and succeeded in writing a play not in which nothing happens twice, but in which everything happens. He, he managed with Godot to write a play about the human condition, taking away from it everything except the essential condition. You put on a country road beside a rock and a tree, two men, Who are doing what humanity spends all its life doing waiting the human condition is one of waiting so i mean you you know you get born and then hopefully many many years later you die what do you do in the meantime and that's what he wrote wow and it genuinely, you went on. You went on. And so you get plays like Endgame, the process of ending. When everything, when all your hopes, your dreams, your passions have enclosed themselves down to a little room, and everything out beyond that is barren and waste because it no longer can sustain you or feed your imagination. And you are trapped in that little room with the, the, the detritus of your life. How do you end? how do you end? How do we end? How do we come to an end? So what Beckett did was he said, okay, we're going to use theatre as a way of looking at how life works and reduced his characters to their absolute essential minimum. And that's what makes them so wonderful to play because what you're provided with Beckett is, but he also rewrote the language of theatre and out of Beckett grew that whole Angry Young Man movement and the Osbornes and things. Most the most important disciple of all being Harold Pinter. Uh, but out of that language that Beckett, he didn't create theatre, he redefined it.
0: That's why he's important. And and for you it is that they are of equal importance, the Greeks, Mr. Shakespeare, and Mr. Beckett. Absolutely. That is a, that, well, that's high praise indeed.
1: In fact, I always say, I always say, you know, every time I direct Shakespeare, look at Shakespeare, first thing that comes into my mind, my God, Shakespeare really must have read Beckett.
0: Oh wow I like that I like that a lot Well look Since we've brought up Shakespeare Let's talk about Shakespeare And specifically let's talk about The birth of Second Age And the process of Second Age How did that all come about for you?
1: Very simple Uh, I've always had a passion for Shakespeare Uh, You know I was trained in the English theatre So you can't really avoid it But It was 19 1989 And And the year after we did the first, uh, Godo, the first time, and Salome. And uh, I was 20 years in the Irish theatre, and I wanted to do something, you know, for myself to celebrate it. And one of the things I always hated was the fact that so many, so many, shall we say, theatrical operations had for years been ripping off schools by putting on incredibly cheap, mediocre... Not cheap mediocre because they were bad people, but because there wasn't any money and everybody wanted to make a bob or two out of it. And I came up with the idea, let us put on Shakespeare for Schools and put every single penny we make back into it. And that was the idea. And of course, uh, so a group of us got together, myself, Brian O'Donnell, Ronan Smith, and... Um, Mountain Drury and we put on As You Like It and we took a joint and several ro- s- several loan of 30,000 I think my house was the collateral wow and we put on As You Like It and we lost um, and We 30,000 yeah and we lost 33,000 so <laughs>
0: that's so an we, achievement
1: <laughs> yes so we had a simple choice put on another one or sell up and move to Australia so we put on Othello and we made 11,000 back, and then we put on another one and we started to make back. And then the second year of, or the second or third year of operation, uh, we got a very small Arts Council grant. And it grew from there. And then it grew into more than just doing plays for Shakespeare for schools, it became doing Shakespeare for young people and adult audiences and encouraging people to go and look and see. And the standard has not always been brilliant. I'd be the first to admit that but of, of late the standard has been phenomenally
0: high well uh, there's a there's a thing that I've I mean I've as you know I've worked with second age three or four times now and yeah. the 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 one th- sentence I always come back to is that second age don't make schools shakespeare they make shakespeare to which school groups happen to go that's and-
1: exactly it that's exactly right and that was when I because I left the company for a while and then I came and when I came back I said this is this is this is what we must do. We, we are not doing Shakespeare for schools. We are doing Shakespeare and stu- schools come to see it, and so do adults. You cannot condescend to young audiences. In fact, I even took the, the phrase schools out of it because it is about young audiences. And okay, a lot of them come because they have to, but a lot of them stay, a lot of them come back. And over the, the it's what is it, 22, 23 years now, and I, this is not hyperbole. This is this is the truth. So many people will say to me, "Do you know I started going to the theatre because of Second Age? Oh, I learned to love Shakespeare because of Second Age. I decided to be an actor because I went to see Second Age when I was a kid. I do, you know, I'm, not one or two. I'm talking many, many people. So it had a very important position, and and that position was based on the fact that it wasn't something. I mean, we, we always sort of said, well, it would be cheaper if to we took the place to the schools. And he said, no, we're not about taking place to schools. We're about bringing young people into the theatre, yeah. have a theatrical experience. So that was the purpose behind it. And the Arts Council did travel. The Arts Council never funded it adequately in comparison to other things uh, because they got, we got onto the percentage bandwagon. Uh, and the trouble with the percentage bandwagon is if everybody gets an across-the-board 5% increase, people with 100,000 get a lot more than people with 20,000. And, and the council built in this gap because there was a, a, a sort of a crazy thinking, well, we can't give more money to, to so-and-so than we're giving to somebody else. Yes. And the answer is, well, you are doing that because you're dealing in percentages, not actualities, not actual need. So the company was suffered from that and never really grew as much as it could have done. Nowadays everybody's collapsing, so what can I tell
0: you? Yeah, well, now you have served on the Arts Council for a number of years. How did that come about, and what was that like? Are you are you into conflict of interest territory at that stage?
1: No, well, no, not really. Um, you get invited. The then Minister um, John O'Donoghue invited me to join the Arts Council for five years, and I was most honoured uh, to do so. And uh, there isn't well, there is the conflict of interest in that I would naturally passionately uh work for theater interests but i also had a very broad knowledge i mean you know don't forget i did run an art gallery yes (laughs) uh i did run a music center i did i I have a a fascination and interest in dance and in fact i at one point i sort of single-handedly ran the dance center and kept the the college of dance going uh, because the Arts Council didn't care, didn't want to know. The uh, College of Dance now is very successful and has very, very um, uh, successful graduates. Uh, the Dance Centre disappeared when when eventually Dance House was built. But So I had a very broad experience of the arts, uh, which was a good reason to join the council, I suppose, or to be invited. But yeah, they'll, they'll my interest, of course, would always be you know, in terms of, of, of theatre and the funding of theatre and how theatre was funded and uh, I won't say that my five years on the council were entirely happy um, because I, f- I did find it frustrating. Um, I, I, I find bureaucracy frustrating at the best of times. Yeah. Um, and I do think there are a lot of injustices in the funding of theatre in Ireland. Okay. Shall we say that? Okay. I, d- I think that that we are a country, if we cannot afford, if we, I'm trying to phrase this right, if we cannot afford the opportunity for alternative development, such as I had when I was young and was talking about project, and if we cannot afford to fund and support theater that entertains the vast audience and support Um, a national theatre enterprise. If we can't do all of those things, then we must be very careful how we balance what we do fund. And I believe
0: theatre funding in Ireland got out of kilter. I think that's a, that's a view that would be shared by many people at the moment, and just the, the the diversity and whatever that you would hope would be there maybe isn't as strong as it could be at the moment.
1: Well, unfortunately, unfo- yes, unfortunately, I believe, for instance, that theatre theatre funding in in Ireland has become ageist. Really. Yes.
0: And I think there is in direction
1: to, towards the young. Okay. Um. I think that that the, the now do you remember what I said way back? You had to fight and work and prove your worth, and then you got support. I believe, I'm being very controversial here, um, I believe that we've gone from the point where prove what you can do, prove your determination to do it, and we will support you. We've now got to the point of, oh, you've got a good idea. Here's some money. Try it out. Oh, well, that didn't work, and you weren't very good. Well, let's try somebody else. Yeah. And I think it's bad. And also an awful lot of people who are theater makers in the middle period of their creative lives are getting dumped. What we've started to do, apart from, shall we say, um, the amorphous mass, and I won't call it anything other than that, um, the, the there are people who... who you know, because council funding and arts funding and various other things oh there's a good idea there's a young person let's put the young person with no experience and the good idea that nobody's tried together uh and see if they can make anything of it and they can't because they haven't got the experience the knowledge or the or 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 or, or the 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 authority to make it work that doesn't work they're forgotten three years later some new, more new people have come along you forget the people that you first funded and we go with the youth, new people again so there's a kind of an ageist attitude that you've got to be young inexperienced and 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 trying something that nobody's ever done before and 90% of the time that is that is a recipe for failure there is no mentoring of people from the beginning to the middle of their career
0: but that's something that you've tried to put in place with directors specifically over the last little yes. while isn't it
1: Yes, but yeah, I, I've I've tried to do it with no funding, and no, and a few. I mean, I'm not alone in this. I, I'm not the only person who's done this. But you know, you try to put this together um, without without any real logical support from the major funding sources. i I argued mentoring for five years in the council, but I don't think I got anywhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, and like you say, I mean, you know, for the you know young, fresh Turks coming out, full of energy and full of ideas, is great. But you know, for people who are that a little bit further into their career, who aren't quite at the you know huge established level of the Gates or the Druids or the Rough Magics, there yeah. there is that yeah. that in between so, um, scale where yeah. where it, it is clear that you know companies and practitioners are being squeezed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I argue. I mean, obviously, I argued in favour. of I mean, I... When I was on the council, I couldn't even say the words Second age." I'd have to leave not the room but the building and possibly <laughs> city to make you know because you know, I had to be so clearly above suspicion. I I, I would move to I'd move to Galway any time they were discussing second age. But um, it it and other companies like it which are mentoring style companies where you're taking young and and mid-career actors and putting them into the exposure to to the kind of material they would not normally have exposure to, that is a mentoring process. That's saying come learn Shakespeare, come learn to work in... I mean you've done it. Yes. You've worked with it and so many other actors who who probably the only experience they will ever have of of working with Shakespeare or verse drama will be with Second Age Uh, but that's not recognized as a valid reason to fund a company like that or any other company working in, in particular areas it's not considered valid enough a reason when we can take we can give an awful lot of money to very established big major-funded theater or new people who who are going to be the fashion of the moment and then be dumped the moment something other new comes along Yeah. I think there's some it there is no joined up thinking going on.
0: Yeah, it's interesting times all right. It is interesting times. Oh yes, that's the, that's the Chinese curse, isn't it? May you live in interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so look, let's uh, let's bring things to a close with more recent stuff. Um it I mean you are still massively successful, but I mean I know in in recent times there has been a lot more directing and writing, but you you've been back performing a good bit over the last little while and The Crucible was hugely successful for you.
1: Oh for yeah, so. that was great. I love Connell I love Connell Connell I love you no uh, because you know in the last couple of years I've done two things I I oh two parts I've always wanted to play bless you Connell Morrison um, yeah I, I went back I, I went back I, I made a triumphant return to the Abbey stage after twenty eight
0: years absence um, and uh, at well now here 's a question does I mean the the fabled Abbey Gate divide that there are actors who work in the gate there are actors who work in the Abbey, and never the twain shall meet? Do you think there's any basis in fact for that yeah there's a basis in fact, but it's not it 's not because the actors don 't want to
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay i don 't work in the Abbey anytime they offer me a job um, i you know I just like to act in plays and I like to direct plays and I like to put plays on. And to be asked to go and play Lady Bracknell in my national theatre, and you know, let us remind her, thats my national theatre. It's your national theatre. It's a very important place, and that was such a privilege. And I had such a ball doing it. And I, apart from the, the plays that uh, I don't know, Stephen Stephen Brennan said to me once, "When was the last time you appeared in a play you hadn't appeared in before?" He said, "I think it's about fifteen years." <laughs> but um, to to play Lady Bracknell was such a buzz. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. We did it two summers, and then last summer we did it here in Pittsburgh. We did exactly that production, Connell came across and directed it. It was the same set, and, uh, everything. We had a, a, a fantastic time. Uh, and then last year, early, I, one part I've wanted to play so often, and on every occasion it was done in the Abbey, I didn't get the part, or didn't even get asked. So uh, Connell said, uh, how would you feel about playing uh, Judge Danforth in Belfast? I said, I'm on the train now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that
1: was fantastic too. It was a great production. Um, he did a, it was a magic production and we were very lucky because it opened the new... Have you seen the new lyric? It,
0: it is stunning. It, as theatre venues go on the island of Ireland, it is absolutely. incredible.
1: Absolutely. It and the Wexford Opera House are the two best things that have happened in years. Um, so we were very privileged that we, 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 we did the opening production and it was The Crucible and it was, you know, uh, it was... Pretty much a local cast, which was fantastic. Yeah, and we did. There were no phony New England accents. They played it in, in a natural, the natural Ulster cadence and rhythm. And uh, it, it, except for me, so that that made Danforth stand out as what he was—a completely arrogant.
0: You're still fighting that typecasting, That's, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I don't know why. Cause I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terribly cuddly person, really. You know, but they um. No, it was it was fantastic to play, and it was a fantastic audience, and it was such an exciting production, and I was so glad it got recognised in the theatre awards because it deserved it. It was it was tremendous.
0: That's great. No, what it was, certainly did. All those nominations and awards coming out their ears. So then, talk to me about what has you in the states. Tell me about this newest phase. Um, what whatever takes
1: anybody anywhere, work. Um, I I've been coming back and forth. I mean, I've been coming back and forth to the States for years and years and years and years. But uh, mostly with touring and, and festivals and things. And then we were touring Godot around the state, one of our interminable tours, about five years ago, and we came to Pittsburgh. And, um, and it rained, and, <laughs> uh, which it tends to in November. Anyway, one night, there, there's a theatre company here called Pittsburgh Irish and Classical Theatre, And uh, they had just done a Beckett Festival. They did all the plays, but they didn't do Godot because they knew we were coming. So all their subscribers and everything came to see us. And the company threw a party for us uh, on one night where we'd meet their donors and subscribers, you know, the the way it works here. And uh, it happened that one of the board of directors um, was a doctor um, who was in school with Barry McGovern. Right. And he came up to me and said I want you to meet our artistic director and I met this guy who looked he looks 12. But he's actually not. You one of those people who, who annoyingly never looks older. He thinks 12 as well. But uh, no, I don't. But um, he said to me, you know that production of Salome you have in the gate. I said yeah. He said would you come and direct it here? So I said no, I can't because that's the gate production. But I'll come and direct another production of Salome for you here. So the next year I came back and directed another production of Salome, uh, still using all the slow motion and all of that the, the thing, but, but but a different staging of it. The next year he, said he wanted to do my version of Jane Eyre, which I couldn't come back to do because I was working in the gate, but I, I, he, they put on the play. Then uh, two years ago we did a Pinter Festival here I came to direct for. And at that point, the lawyer who was doing my 01 visas said, <laughs> said to me, By the way, he said, Do you know now that we can get you a green card on the basis that you are, they don't, they don't question your applications anymore, they just stamp them? And I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, you're on an 01 visa, uh, and I love this. I always think it makes me sound like ET. As an, an alien of extraordinary ability. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's something that's probably been said behind your back for many years.
1: Yes. Well, not necessarily extraordinary, peculiar, I think. <laughs> I would say. But so I said, well, let's go for it. So they did. And I got it. And um, so I have permanent residence, which is really nice. Amazing. And, uh, and the company keep bringing me back and forth. And so I, uh, here I am. And, uh, and, and, and rumors of my emigration are grossly exaggerated. Right. Okay. I just I can I can work in both places now, you know, which means I I might be able to scrape an actual living because it, once you hit sixty, um, it 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 actually does get harder and harder to get work.
0: Right. So for the moment, it is at a temporary base, but that you'll be splitting your time kind of between the yes. two as centers. Yes, yes, Excellent. yes. Excellent. It's all wonderfully exciting. Well, listen, I'm not going to take any more of your time. Thank you so much for having that chat. It's I'm, just...
1: I'm about to go off and continue rehearsing. The first play I'm directing here this season is a play called In the Other Room or The Vibrator Play. And yes, that's exactly what it's about
0: it's shocking to me that that is a topic you would be handling it is it's I <laughs> the thought of me
1: handling a vibrator is just <laughs>
0: <laughs> and on that note alan stanford thank you so much for having a chat to us that was uh, absolutely spectacular and i wish you. you continued success on on both sides of the atlantic thank you so much so there you have it, the great Alan Stanford. Such an interesting chat to have with him. Great to get such an insight into so many different elements and aspects to the business. And you know, he's just a guy I have an awful lot of time for. He's a guy who's been uh, a big inspiration to me uh, and a huge help to me over over my career so far. A guy who kind of took me under his wing very early on, gave me a lot of work in the early days, and just watching how he works in a rehearsal room uh, has has been had a big impact on on my life and my career uh, to this day. And also, he introduced me to my love of good wine and good food so uh, I have an awful lot to be grateful uh, to Alan Stanford for and I'm just delighted he, he agreed to come on and delighted we are able to do it with our brand new shiny technology across the Atlantic talking from miles and miles away it's a beautiful and exciting thing so look that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country last night saw the opening of what is without question the most talked about show of this year Alice in Thunderland at the Abbey and by all accounts it was uh, a huge success people have been raving about it since I can't wait to get in and see that show. As you know, we've been doing our best to support it here on the podcast, talking to Philly and Paul Reed, and to Keith Hanna and Tara Furlong, who's also on that show. Um, I've just heard so many great things about it. I like the vibe of it. I like the people involved. Uh, By all accounts, it's spectacular. So um, as far as I know, tickets are moving quickly. You might need to get in there sooner rather than later. Um, At Project, uh, Durang Durang is on in Project Cube. I was there last night. Uh, Some hilarious performances there. Um, That's a bonkers crazy night at the theatre. Um, Upstairs at Project Ella Clark's new dance piece, The Fall, is going this week at the Viking Theatre at the Sheds we have March Away My Brothers and that'll be followed next week by Tuesdays with Morrie uh, we still have Da at the Gate though I'm pretty sure that's finishing up this Saturday i got a chance to get in see it through the night man I'd watch Owen Rowe read the phone book he's just amazing what an actor what a performer uh, and, and just such a wonderful play um, at Smock Alley at the moment Monster Clock is getting rave reviews and in fact they've extended that for a couple of performances next week as well I think it's selling very heavily for this week but I know they've added Uh, I think three performances for next week best place to get information on that is just to check out Smock Alley's website also at Smock Alley Pan Pan have a dollhouse which is previewing at the moment and will be opening next week and also at Smock Alley, True West is about to kick off from Ramblin' Man Uh, Up at Bewley's Cafe Theatre they have Joist by Donal O'Kelly in the lunchtime slot and also um, Picture of Dorian Gray is on uh, in the evenings, that's like a dinner theatre style thing. Uh, Bag Lady by Frank McGuinness is at the Pavilion Theatre The Focus Theatre has Before Vanishing, which is four short Beckett plays, and then as we move around the country up to Belfast White Star of the North, directed by Des Kennedy is at The Lyric, as is Carthage the uh, the Frank McGuinness play and down in Cork Prime Cuts production of Shoot the Crow is at the Everyman and the Opera House has that touring production of Dear Frankie so that's us that is episode 22 in the books we will be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish theatre podcast for Angus Ogue McAnally I'm Angus Ogue McAnally we'll see you next week